I'm, I'm walking to uh, my secure facility now. You know, given uh, recent events, I've had to move to a different location with much higher security protocols. And I'm just coming up to the elevator now. All right, let me get this door. These old cargo doors are difficult to close. But it turns out you can get these old military nuclear silos fairly cheap if you shop around I'm going about 120 feet down here these old elevators are a little slow okay these doors need some oil some grease okay now I'm in the computer terminal room let me get this sealed up and secure Just uh, bear with me here. Things a little slow. You know, you can't be too safe nowadays. And let me secure the other back door. Okay. Now the pressure lock. Then we'll be totally secure and we can start the show. Now we're ready to roll. Hello and welcome to the Scorpio International Holding Company, LLC. Today's date is Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. I am your host, Dave Scorpio. And you are listening to RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
and welcome to the Free Range Open Air Insane Asylum, we call Earth. Well, guys, here we are. Here we are watching the very pillars of civilization being torn down. Yes, we are watching the very pillars of civilization being torn down right before our eyes. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what are the acceptable limits of depravity, cruelty, and murder on the world stage? What are the acceptable limits? These are all in question right now in world time as we watch the final stage or the end game in Gaza being played out right now. And, you know, as I stated uh, a few weeks back, uh, you know, I believe that the worst part of this Gaza massacre was still ahead of us uh, with the coming attack on Rafa, the so-called safe zone declared by the Israelis some time ago. And, of course, you know, Israel is planning on attacking Rafa during Ramadan. Nothing, uh, you know, antagonistic about that. Not trying to escalate the, the situation at all there. Uh, unless all of the so-called hostages are released, if they even exist, I don't know. As I've stated before, I'm in serious doubt about at the very least, the numbers of these hostages, if they even exist at all. But it's looking more and more like Israel is trying to pressure uh, Egypt into opening up its border uh, and accept the hordes of refugees uh, once this attack begins. And this is a scenario that I've called out some, some time ago when this first started. I thought that would be the attempted endgame is to simply force them out of the country and sort of ride the wave of refugees. We're hearing all about refugees everywhere. Just ride that wave and try to um, normalize this. But it's really amazing, you know. Some days ago, a few days ago, Israel massacred over 112 people and injured over 760 people who were trying to get food at the food relief trucks in Gaza, where people are literally beginning to starve to death. You know, men, women, and children with no food lined up at food trucks who were callously shot and murdered in this, what what would you call it, an open act of barbarity and cruelty. And that's why I say the very pillars of civilization are under assault right now. Does a civilized society accept such acts 
does a civilized society try to explain away these um, barbaric acts? Uh, oh, the Israelis were afraid there was a threat, so they opened fire on the desperate people who were starving. Uh, yeah, it's a real threat there. And it's really amazing to see the mainstream media, even the more liberal ends of it, uh, try to explain this away and to minimalize it and even excuse it. They were concerned for their safety. They're defending themselves. I mean, that's the uh, the line that's gone into absurdity. The mantra has become nothing more than an absurd statement given recent events. But to try to hear the mainstream media explain this away, I, you know, I was listening to NPR covering this, and they called it an incident, an incident at the relief food trucks in Gaza. An incident, not a massacre, but an incident. It's amazing how words do change people's perception. An incident. Amazing. Yeah. So do we live in a world where this is going to be accepted and swept under the carpet? I don't think so. I really don't, but watching television, you'd never know. And I do think, you know, the Zionists who control the media are getting high on their own supply. I think they really do think they can just do whatever they want and people will accept it. And that's been historically true to some degree, but I think some major lines are being crossed right now that cannot be undone. And make no mistake, um, if they get away with this, the Israelis will feel free, and you know the Israelis and their their masters, the people who run Israel, who own Israel, they will feel free to do these acts of barbarity anywhere they choose, anywhere they choose, if they feel it would suit their needs or further their agenda. Make no mistake about that. So, this is an absolutely outrageous assault on the very foundations of the civilized world, guys. It really is. And don't think for a moment this couldn't come to America if it suited their purposes or anywhere in the world. I think that's Part of what's going on here, they're testing the waters to see if this can be accepted and normalized. And for the love of all things decent and good, it cannot ever be. And earlier I mentioned how the you know mainstream media is afraid to call this what it is, a massacre. And of course, there's multiple reasons for this. Well, one of course is that the Zionists own 
the media. But I think there's deeper reasons why more people are afraid to speak their mind and call a spade a spade. How, how did we get to this point? How do we get to the point where people are afraid to speak their minds, even as they watch the most depraved murder and killing they've probably ever seen in their lives, an assault, an open assault upon truly innocent civilians? How did we get to this point? And you know, today I'm going I'm to do something a little different. I'm going to play some clips from an interview that I came across uh, as I was going through my archives. I was kind of looking through some stuff. And I came across an, an interesting interview that I had tucked away years ago. And this interview, it sort of goes through... Uh, it gives a sort of a historic perspective and a philosophical perspective on how do we get there? How did we get to the point where free speech is being limited so severely? What, what are the philosophical origins of this? How did this happen? So I'm going to play a series of clips from an interview from November 29, 2021. And it's an interview by... Uh, Bonnie Faulkner, whose uh, show is called Guns and Butter. And in this uh, particular show, she is interviewing a guy named Michael Rechtenwald. And this is a guy who was a career professor at some major universities, including uh, New York University, Duke University, and Carnegie Mellon. So this guy was in the big leagues in terms of academia for his career. And another interesting thing about this Michael Rechtenwald guy, he's a former communist. He's, he was a, an avid communist for 25 years uh, until he finally realized what he was part of, ideologically speaking. So this is kind of like hearing some enemy war transmissions from a guy who flipped and changed sides. And he's obviously a very intelligent man, and he, he, he reveals some important ideas and goes through the history of this ideology, this far leftist ideology that is sort of taken hold of the Western world. Again, how did we get here? How did this happen? And for, for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, Guns and Butter, you know, Bonnie Faulkner had her show, Guns and Butter, uh, on for years. And it's, it's, it was one of these shows that kind of played on um, a lot of, you know, NPR and public radio stations, uh, community radio stations. And she, she was syndicated. Uh, you know, at least in the western part of the country, in California and Oregon and uh, Washington State, for for years, her show is you know well known in kind of certain liberal circles. And uh, oddly enough, her show came to an abrupt end 
when she dared to do a show on Zionism and sort of the evils and, you know, perils of Zionism. And, of course, the show was abruptly dropped and she was kicked off the whole syndication network. She was gone in one show after years and years. So that's an interesting little side note. And I, I don't have time before the first break to play the first clip. So I'm going to go ahead and let let the uh, the break come before I play the first clip. But um, we're going to get a really interesting history of where did this far-left ideology come from? Who thought of it? What school of thought created this? And, of course, throughout his presentation, he leaves out one very important fact. And, of course, that's where I'm going to come in. I'm going to help fill in some of the blanks here. But he's brilliant nonetheless, but it's also a good exercise in seeing how if you're missing one important piece of the puzzle, you really don't see the picture. You don't see the overarching uh, picture that's in front of you. So, this is a very interesting topic, and He does a great job of going through this this history and who's behind it and contrasting it with the idea of, of classical liberalism. Because one of the pillars of classical liberalism was this idea of free speech. Free speech is sacrosanct. And I'm sure many of you out there remember the days when it was the liberals who would advocate for free speech. It wasn't that long ago when this sort of thinking was still in play. But now we've come to a situation where the polar opposite has reached its influence all over Western society, the Western world, and the Western media. And of course, these ideas have filtered down to the people to where they're actually afraid to speak out against an open, brutal genocide. It's just a genocide. Don't make anyone uncomfortable. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, do we? Stay tuned. We're going to dive into some history and some philosophy here. We will be right back.
Here's some interesting news. Due to all the recent claims about possible nuclear wars, viruses, solar flares, and civil unrest, people are scrambling to prepare and stockpile food. But the one thing out of reach for many is an underground bunker. Until now. Because you can now have a 3D printed underground bunker in just one day. An excavator digs a hole in your backyard, and 3dbunkers.com shows up in a small truck and sets up their 3D printer under a tent completely undetected. They can print as many rooms as you want at a fraction of the cost compared to traditional metal bunkers. 3D Bunkers uses polymer concrete, which is five times stronger than regular cement. YouTube 3DBunkers.com and watch the video. The creators of 3D Bunkers is looking for a business partner that can help bring this technology to the world. And we need to protect our way of life without living in fear. Contact Brad at 3DBunkers.com for more details or visit 3DBunkers.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pasture-raised meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Here 
on the Scorpio International Holding Company, LLC. So let's just dive right in here. Let's play the first clip of um, Michael Rechtenwald talking about the origins of this anti-free speech leftist ideology that we live in today, this sea of censorship we are living in. How did this begin? So, Sam, if you could please play the Marcuse clip number one. You cited a 1955 essay by philosopher Herbert Marcuse, Repressive Tolerance, as the playbook for the modern left. What did Marcuse propose in this essay, Repressive Tolerance? Oh, yes. Well, it was 1965. Um, But that's not important, except that it became this became this essay, Repressive Tolerance, became a playbook for who was allowed to speak and who wasn't, what could be censored and what couldn't. According to Marcuse, tolerance should only be accorded to those who are fighting for so-called progressivism or progressive ideas or leftism, really. And everyone else should be silenced because their views are violent and their views are uh, oppressive and their views are criminal, really. And they should not be aired because he said that the, the establishment already gives them, uh, gives them a biased preference. They're already given preference by a biased society. And likewise, they have to be silenced in order for, for uh, truth and progress to, to occur. And uh, this essay has become the playbook of the modern left in that they're very censorious and they are very much opposed to any speech that is deemed retrograde, that is deemed oppressive. So your speech becomes violence, uh, according to them, and they are, according to Marcusa, uh, justified in using violence to shut down your speech. So it's it's often said that you know your speech is violence, while my violence is mere speech, uh, with reference to this view. And Marcusa became the father of the new left, really. Uh, and uh, the repressive tolerance essay has become like a blueprint for how the left treats speech. It's a very, uh, it's a very uh, convoluted argument that he makes, but the end result is basically the only speech that's tolerable is leftist speech, and everything else must be shut down. I remember in the late 60s, he was teaching at the University of California, San Diego. Now, with regard to this uh, essay, Repressive Tolerance, from 1965, was that uh, immediately embraced by the left? Um, I wouldn't say immediately, but it became, it started to sort of permeate the leftist thinking. And this is where I think the left went off the rails in terms of uh, freedom of speech and individual rights. Because hitherto, the left had really been uh, supportive of individual rights of expression and so forth. I mean, the free speech movement really was a leftist movement at Berkeley. And uh, when when Marcuse's ideas became 
basically uh, au courant, uh, it, it eventually worked its way into the leftist vocabulary and ethos, and then it effectively became taken for granted. This is not to say that many of these people actually read this essay. It just worked its way into uh, leftist uh, ideas, you know, sort of subterraneously, and it became, you know, effectively the protocol for how speech was to be regarded. Okay, so... Oh, we just made it onto the uh, on the clip there. That's great. Okay, we're seeing the origins of censorship from the left and leftist totalitarianism. We'll be right back. Everyone stay tuned. Listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. People often write to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few highlights. Extendivite works in keeping my blood pressure in the normal range. I have been using Extendivite for many years. Great product. I use regularly and I rarely get sick. This product has relieved what appeared to be angina pain in my chest and shortness of breath after climbing stairs. I'm quite happy about it. My husband, son, and I have been using this product for a few months now, and we have noticed an improvement in our joints and blood pressure. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with Extendovite. 
What would you say if I told you we have a new tool that will increase production and lower maintenance costs for your meat processing company, and it would pay for itself in just six weeks? When pigs fly! The new Ease-Off Model EZ4 replaces old spring-style carcass droppers and is faster, safer, and more reliable. The Ease-Off lowers or lifts 1,000 pounds to or from your rail automatically using our remote control. Sounds expensive! Can I afford it? Can you afford not to try the Ease-Off? It installs fast with just three bolts in place of your current dropper. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue and injuries, speed up your line, eliminate downtime, and increase profit. How can I order my EaseOff? Go to EaseOff.com, E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com, and hurry, because we are offering $200 off on the new Easy 4 for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC. Summersville, Missouri. 417-932-6419. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. We like living right, being free. We don't make so before the break, uh, you know, we heard uh, Michael Rechtenwald talking about the origins of this leftist ideology. He traces it back to Herbert Marcuse, who was a very influential guy back in the 60s. More on him later. But, you know, the timing of this to me is very interesting because 1965 is when the article Repressive Tolerance came out by Marcuse. And you have to ask yourself, well, did America undergo sort of a cultural revolution in the 60s? And I would argue, yes, we certainly did. And exactly when did the Chinese communist cultural revolution take place? Well, it started May 16, 1966. And went on until October 6, 1976. So those are essentially the same years that the American Cultural Revolution was going on. It wasn't called that, but boots on the ground, that's essentially what it was. And, you know, frankly, I can't accept such a coincidence as, you know, just nothing. I think there's a reason why these two events were happening essentially simultaneously in China and America. I don't think that's an accident. And of course, you know, Philip or Herbert Marcuse uh, was actually a, a, a propagandist during World War II. He, he immigrated from Germany and was a, a propagandist for the American side during World War II, you know, creating anti-Nazi propaganda. So this guy was connected, and more on him later. But we, are, we, we really are seeing the origins of the left's call for censorship and the abject hatred of free speech. And, you know, it's been said that men don't have ideas. 
ideas have men. And if you think about it, I think it's kind of true. Men don't have ideas. Ideas have men. There's really something to that and something to think about and ponder. Okay, well, let's go on to the second clip here because the time is just flying by. And um, we're going to hear a little bit here about classical liberalism and its origins and what it was and sort of a contrast with what this modern ideology we're facing that we're seeing all over the Western world. So, Sam, if you could please play uh, clip number two. Is classic liberalism, for instance, and how does it compare with social justice? Classical liberalism is basically the liberalism of John Stuart Mill and his book on liberty, in effect. And that is to say, it regards individual expression as sacrosanct and not to be silenced, that everyone has a right to free speech, free association. And as long as, as, long as your uh, activities, including behavior, does not encroach on anyone else's rights, then it's perfectly permissible and should be protected. Uh, this was the basic idea in On Liberty, but it really is also enshrined in the U.S. Constitution in terms of speech. The only speech that's forbidden is speech that incites imminent violence against others. And even the category of hate speech doesn't exist in terms of the U.S. Constitution or constitutional interpretation. So this is basically the American ideal uh, of free rights, of individual rights, I should say. And uh, it is different than social justice because social justice deems the speech of the dominant to be violent in say by itself before anything else. In other words, it is violent because it represents the suppression or oppression of other people. Therefore, it needs to be silenced. This is why we see, you know, uh, people that don't abide by leftist uh, ideas silenced on campuses throughout the United States. They've been, you know, not only have have they been silenced, but campuses have been burned down at Berkeley, for example, when Milo Yiannopoulos was to speak. And even innocuous speakers such as uh, Christina Hoff Summers, the uh, equity feminist, has been silenced. And uh, Charles Murray, the co-author of The Bell Curve, was completely shut down at Millbury College, Middlebury. So... Um, this is really the ethos of the social justice left is that any member of the dominant group, when they speak, their speech is oppressing. It's oppression, and therefore it can't be permitted. And this goes right back to Marcuse's uh, axioms in repressive tolerance. Okay, so we're seeing these uh, this idea of Censorship and stopping free speech, really going back to Marcuse's 1965 essay. That's sort of the, the genesis, the, the seed for it. And of course, note how he says there's no such thing as hate speech. It does not exist. And free speech was the sort of the very pillar of the old left. You know, John Stuart Mill on liberty. 
And it really wasn't that long ago that that's where the left was. They were, you know, all about free speech. And we're sort of witnessing this this transformation into the polar opposite. So it's very interesting stuff here. And um, so now uh, let's dive a little deeper into this new leftist ideology and a little deeper into its origins and exactly who were the people that helped construct it. And Marcuse was one of them, of course, but there is a whole school of thought that helped organize and create this. So, uh, Sam, if you could please play clip number three. And then, it, of course, it has to do with who's defining who's dominant, right? Right. And this is given by virtue of this intersectional ranking system that you can't be oppressed or you can't, you must be a dominant you must be dominant if you have certain phenotypical characteristics. And so, it, it, you know, it reduces down to really quite, it's quite essentialistic in that it deems people to be of the dominant group based solely on their phenotype. Uh, are they white? Are they male? Uh, are they heterosexual? Things like that. These are the criteria that would make you part of the dominant oppressive group. And nothing about your background, even your even your uh, economic status, really mitigates that. It makes no difference. And even if under, uh, say, a leftist totalitarian situation, which I believe we're under right now, you're really not dominant at all. In fact, your speech is very much beleaguered, and you're in a beleaguered category. You're still considered dominant. Uh, based on this hierarchy, and you'll you'll be shut down on that basis. And even if you're shut down, you're still not oppressed. So it's very, very, very curious, isn't it, that though this group, the social justice uh, ideology, has really become dominant in our society, those who are uh, those who are deemed, you know, the oppressors are still the oppressors, despite being silenced. And I should say really more than silence canceled from society in many ways. You mentioned the term intersectionality. I never understood that term before. Is that an, an academic term? It started off as a term in uh, critical legal studies, and it was a way for um, legal scholars to argue on the behalf of subordinated people's Suggesting that you know we needed to take into consideration all of the all of the kinds of oppression that somebody is under, like racial, uh, sexual, sexual preference, gender, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and um, it became the uh, the axiomatic framework for critical race theory, which is very dominant now, very very prevalent. And it has um, informed the social justice movement entirely. So it's, it started off in what they call critical legal studies, which, by the way, is based on critical theory, which was the school of thought that Marcuse was a, was a proponent of. Critical theory came from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. 
and Marcuse was one of the Frankfurt School theorists. Uh, so the social justice creed uses the intersectional ranking system as its basis. So Rechtenwald really lays it out here, uh, this, this idea of intersectionality. So the more repressed you are by the forces of society, the more right you have to free speech, the, the better you are as a person, so to speak, and the more rights you have. So it's an inversion of society. The people at the very bottom are being thrust to the top through this idea of intersectionality. Now, of course, inversion is a, is a technique. Uh, you could call it satanic. Satan- Satanists always invert things. So this is a very dark kind of philosophy that's not going to end well. And Rechtenwald comes out and says that Marcuse was part of the Frankfurt Frankfurt School of Philosophy. And that was a group of philosophers and scholars who were all Jewish. There may have been one of them in the group that wasn't, but pretty much to a man, they were all Jews, including Marcuse. Including Marcuse. So, you know, Rechtenwald is basically saying that the entire foundation for this modern leftist totalitarian thinking comes from Jewish philosophy. Of course, he leaves out that one little important fact that all these people were Jewish, including Marcuse. And I don't know if he did that on purpose or if he just wasn't personally aware of it. But it's an interesting exercise to see how if one important little fact is left out of the picture, you don't see really what you're looking at here. So it's amazing how you leave out one little piece of information, and once you add it, your perspective changes very rapidly. So I don't know if he did that on purpose or he just wasn't aware. Who knows? But very interesting when one little thing is left out. So now I kind of want to go to the end game. Like where is this ideology taking us, this Jewish ideology? And of course, you know, communism, there's a lot of talk about communism these days, but, you know, communism is Judaism in a political form. That's what communism is. And most people leave that little part out, uh, like, you know, the fact that 95% of the Bolsheviks at the top leadership levels were all Jewish. And it was basically an assault upon the very pillars of Western civilization. So what's the end game? Where are we heading with this? Where does this take us? So I want to play the final clip here uh, that where Rechtenwald talks what, what he thinks the end game is. And I think he's pretty accurate overall. So Sam, if you could play uh, the end game clip, please. 
In one of your footnotes to your essay, Living in the Age of COVID, The Power of the Powerless, you say, quote, as I have written elsewhere, the communist threat may in fact originate from the ruling elite, as may be the case now. You write about corporate socialism and contemporary leftism. Let's begin with corporate socialism. What is corporate socialism? I believe you borrow this term from Anthony Sutton. Is that right? That's right. Anthony C. Sutton, who was a uh, historian and economist who actually worked for the Hoover Institute for many years until they actually canceled him late in his life. Um, He derived this term corporate socialism to understand how it was that major corporations and bankers seem to favor a form of socialism, strangely enough. And this goes against everything that socialists believe. They, they believe that capitalists are naturally opposed to socialists. Well, as it turns out, and he points out very well, they weren't always and they haven't always been opposed to socialism at all. As a matter of fact, he traces the funding of the Bolshevik Revolution to Wall Street bankers. And he explains why, in fact, they would want to why and why, in fact, they would actually endeavor to set up and support socialism because they're monopolists when it comes down to it. So what standard state socialists and corporate socialists have in common is they both favor monopolization. Uh, the, The state socialists favor monopolization by the state. The corporate socialists favor monopolization by corporations. Uh, And so corporate socialism is a form of socialism in which you have corporations monopolizing the economy. And then you have kind of an actually existing socialism for everyone else. Uh, This is kind of a socialism on the ground and corporate oligarchy on top. And in fact, that is what I think is developing in the United States. I think that the COVID crisis has brought it into uh, focus and has made it actually come into uh, greater fruition. And I think this is really why we see, and we see this in, in a way that you've lost millions of small businesses based on the COVID response to the crisis. And you've lost, and you've seen the, you know, accumulation of wealth with these corporate players. You see Amazon taking over more and more production and distribution while small businesses are wiped out. Uh, you, you see this two-tiered system being put into play, and the World Economic Forum has actually advocated this by saying, by the year 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Yet, it doesn't suggest that these corporations will own nothing. In fact, they'll own everything. And you'll be more or less just a surf in effect a consumer and a you know a worker maybe you might not even have to work you might be on universal basic income but the point being is you have a two-tiered static hierarchy Um, and this is really what we're tending towards as we speak is this two-tiered corporate uh this two-tiered kind of neo-feudalism with these major corporations monopolizing the economy And what they have in common with state socialism is they hate the free market. They hate laissez-faire. They don't want laissez-faire economics. They don't want a middle class. 
Uh, and so they both target the middle class and attempt to eradicate it. Well, there you go. I think that is a pretty accurate summation of where they want to take things. And, you know, Anthony Sutton's books, um, I highly recommend all of them. I've read, you know, most of his books. Um, I believe he wrote the very first book on the Secret Society Skull and Bones. I think his work was the very first one on it, uh, detailing the incredible power and influence behind a, a so-called, you know, secret fraternity at Yale and how far those reins of power actually go. And his work on how Wall Street funded the Bolsheviks is excellent. I highly recommend that because it is sort of counterintuitive in some ways, but once you understand the game that all corporations want monopolies, that's part of the purpose of a corporation is to com- is to uh, create a monopoly. And as he said, they all hate laissez-faire economics and they all hate competition. And so you get into the realm of monopolistic capitalism. And I've been talking about that for years, that we are headed towards monopolistic capitalism. And ultimately, what is the real difference between monopolistic capitalism and communism? There isn't much difference because communism is really the ultimate expression of monopolistic capitalism, where the state and the corporations that sort of become merged with the state have monopolistic control over the entire economy. So a lot of the terms that we've been fed are a little different in their precise definition than a lot of people think. And, you know, I've been saying for years now that the reins of economic power in the Western world are in far fewer hands than we've been told through the use of, you know, holding companies and uh, shell companies and interlocking uh, ownerships. This is one of the tricks they use to obfuscate uh, the actual number of controlling parties, which are much fewer than we've been told. And we're a lot further down that road thanks to COVID. Uh, he's completely right that, you know, the real purpose of COVID was to wipe out as many small businesses as possible and consolidate the economic power. And, of course, they tried to create this new reality where people were afraid to talk to each other. You might die if you actually talk because you're going to get COVID and die. Oh, and by the way, take this injection or else you're going to die. And, of course, you know, the, the numerous... uh let's say, Jewish aspects to COVID, it's voluminous. I mean, there's many, many aspects of COVID that were Jewish. And, you know, these are not hate facts. These are simple facts. So I thought that was a really good 
uh, interview. I kind of just picked out the best parts of it for you guys. And um, it's good to know the history of where ideas come from and who cooked them up. And, of course, the, the end game, it all ties into the, what the World Economic Forum talks about. You will own nothing and be happy. And as he pointed out, they don't ever say, well, the corporations will own nothing. They'll own everything. And they're even talking about how you will rent your clothes. You won't even own those. Now, I don't know if they'll ever make it that far. It'll certainly take generations to get there if people just lay back and let it happen, so to speak. But the idea of corporations controlling everything, we are well down that road, a lot further down that road than many of us think, unfortunately. So, we're coming to the close of the first hour. And in the second hour, I do have a guest. And I'm bringing back UK Steve from last week because I thought we had a great conversation last week. And we really just scratched the surface of things with him. Everyone stay tuned. We will be right back with UK Steve. Steve from the UK. Stay tuned. People who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs. For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. HempPaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit HempPaste.com slash RBN. You're listening to Real Talk Radio. 
only on the Republic Broadcasting Network.